Hey everyone, welcome back to Escaping Rock Bottom on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you're watching us on YouTube or on social media, you can see I got a very special guest with me today. I'll introduce him in just a moment. Um, but this is a, um, I just got to set this one up for a little bit here. Uh, I've mentioned so much about that very first AA meeting that I went to a little over nine years ago. And it was right after I got out of the hospital, and the nurse at the hospital sent me to this AA meeting that I had never been to before. And I reluctantly agreed to go to this AA meeting. And the only reason I agreed to it is because the nurse was so nice to me at the hospital. And she said, listen, I'll give you money for a cab ride Mm. as long as you go to this meeting tonight. And so I said, okay, I'll go. When I went to that AA meeting in Hollywood, um, I almost turned around and left because they were handing out raffle tickets. And I was like, what is this place handing out raffle tickets? Like I had just gotten out of the hospital. What am I going to win? What am I going to, yeah. And I was like, this is not the place for me. Um, so this is where Jason comes into my life. So everyone, this is Jason Kennedy. Hi. Thanks for coming on yeah, the show. I appreciate so it. Yeah. He is an incredible guy and I'm so happy that he's agreed to do the podcast because he has an incredible story of his own. But also, uh, he probably didn't realize it that day, but he definitely saved my life. Hmm. So I go to this meeting, right, and they're handing out raffle tickets in Hollywood, and I immediately did a 180, and I started walking away. And the guys who were handing out the raffle tickets were like, yo, buddy, come back, come back, come back. And so I said, no, man, I'm in the wrong place. I'm in the wrong place. And they said, well, why are you here? And I'm like, well, I'm looking for an AA meeting. And they said, well, you're in the spot. So come (laughs) on in. And they gave me a ticket. And I sat in the in the back corner and the whole time, like before the meeting started, was like looking around and this meeting was packed. I would say at least 75 to 100 people were packed inside this meeting. And I was like trying to figure out a way, how do I get the heck out of here? So I was like sitting in the back of the meeting. I had my hat down low, <laughs> not talking to anybody. And sure enough, um, Jason uh, gets up in front of the room and he was the guest speaker that night. And so Jason started speaking And I was just listening, and throughout that, I was like, oh, my God, like, this guy's kind of telling my story. And he kept me hooked and kept me hooked, and sure enough, at the end of that meeting, they called my number, and I had to go to the front, and I had to share, and they had time for one share. So that moment changed my life. So without further ado, Jason is here. (laughs) Buddy, it's so cool. I, I always say the gifts about sobriety are like, I listened to you speak nine years ago, and we're still connected. Yeah, I love that. And I love that when I heard your first podcast, I got a chance to hear that story again. And I remember we had we had met again after that, like a year later, maybe in Palm Springs. Yeah. And then started hanging out. And then you told me that you had heard me at your first meeting. And I love those kind of examples, because I remember the first time that I went to a meeting and I remember connecting with a speaker. And I remember the first time that I saw somebody who I like recognized at a meeting and I felt that kind of connection. And that is something that's so vital to kind of keeping me coming back or kept mm. me coming back in the beginning. And that when people come into the rooms, um, they really need that, um, that kind of thing that keeps them anchored, right? Some sort of connectivity. And I mean, our whole world is looking for that, wouldn't you say? Always. And, and you know, the beautiful thing about when you were speaking that night, you had no idea that I was in the room. And, you know, like we do all these things, you know, we, I, I go around and speak now and we do the podcast and you never know who is watching the podcast on that day. You yeah. never know who's sharing it with somebody else on that day. And so that's like one of the beautiful things is that you never know when you're sharing your story whose life you could be saving. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the reason that you do share your story is also to save yours, right? Totally. You, you kind of save your <laughs> ass, but then you're also there 
you and I have gotten a chance to talk about this opportunity to kind of be a channel, right? And to like just carry a message that may be related to a program or it may just be related to your experiences that somebody needs to hear, which is why I love that you're doing this mm. because there's so many people that will never walk, uh, step foot into a 12-step meeting maybe, yep. but they needed to hear something to, that they could connect to, to feel belonging, and then maybe to get to some level of, of change in their life that they need to change. And sometimes we say, like, we bring the meetings to them, right? When some people can't come to a meeting, we bring a meeting to them. Yeah. And, yeah. and to me, I'm like, well, listen, if I'm interviewing a bunch of sober people with great inspirational stories, I'm essentially bringing meetings to people who will, who will <laughs> yeah, never, never who never will see it. Because you know what people do is they hear the podcast or they see something and they're like, my my friend really needs to hear this and <laughs> they they send it to their friend so um how many how many years do you have sober now um, so i've been sober 17 it'll be 18 years in may isn't that incredible sober 18 years this may so i had nine years when you came into that meeting roughly and i just and celebrated just see i'm telling you the, yeah. the, the, yeah. the connections are just awesome yeah um what was your um because I don't remember actually, what was your drugs of choice? Like, what was your your issue? Was I mean, it drugs got, or booze? It was. I was. I got sober at twenty two, and so I, you know, I was. I drank and used for like five or six years, and my whole thing was that I, I it was an escape. Like it worked for me, you know. Mm. And and we had a chance to talk about this a little bit too. But like when I started drinking, it was the first cure to my alcoholism. Because I had this thing that was always inside of me, right? And, and wherever it came from, I don't know, genetics, you know, whatever. Um, that's not as important to me because what I knew was once I started drinking and then using, and I like did it all the first night. Like I got drunk, I smoked cigarettes, I hooked up with a girl and <laughs> smoked weed all in the first night that I ever drank. Seriously, it was like off to the races and I became, you know who I was, I was starting to become who I was. That stuff stopped working. Mm. And then I would try to compartmentalize. Like I, I was always drinking, but then I wouldn't smoke weed and I wouldn't, but then I would do ecstasy and then I wouldn't do ecstasy for a long time, but then I would do Coke and then I wouldn't do Coke. And then like some nights, all nights, all bets were off. Yeah. Moved to New York and then about four months. How old after, were you when you moved to New York? 22. Okay. So yeah, I moved to New York when I was 20. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, that city can, <laughs> it can escalate chew, some shit. Chew you up and spit you out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I did. I mean, like, but it did it spit me out into recovery mm. in four months, you know? So I was did really Did you get lucky. sober in New York mm -hmm. City? Yeah. Ah, I always say this, like wherever there's a lot of good, hard drug use, there's also a lot oh, of good. great sobriety. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, L.A., same thing. <laughs> L.A. Know? and New York, some of the best meetings I've ever been to. Yeah, and you and you know, there's almost like um, a level of respect because you see people who you may have known from some sort of notoriety or fame, but also you see these people who you're like, oh, I know you went through it. You're oh, yeah. like, you can look at this person you've never seen before, and you're like, damn, you lived that life, and, and I can tell, and look where you are right now. You, you know, know that meet, well, the first meeting that I went to that you were speaking at, uh, there were dudes there that I hadn't seen in years, but I used to party with years mm. before. And they said, they said, we were just waiting for you to come into yeah. these rooms. <laughs> they, they call it saving a seat, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. Um, so yeah, so it's been about 18 years this May. Mm. And, um, you know, I remember that meeting. I, I don't even think that meeting's there anymore. That one that that we that we met at the one that I that you, your first meeting. But I um, I believe it was Melrose and Mansfield. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really bad lighting room. Bad, bad acoustics. <laughs> bad acoustics. It was like the here. lobby of uh, the church. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And we, but the the cool thing was is that I was a little disappointed that 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 meeting was gone. I think I'd gone back to that same place on my five year anniversary, and somebody told me like the meetings were no longer there, mm -hmm. and I was a little I was a little sad about it because. I, 
obviously it has importance in my life, but mm. I just remember I was like, how can that be? There was like a hundred people like pack into this joint. Yeah. But that's the thing. I mean, things, things change. change. Like that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, at what point did you decide, like talk up a little bit about that unmanageability when you finally hit your rock bottom That's like mm. the number one question I always get from people is how did you know when you were done? Um, I woke up in the morning, you know, so what had happened was that I had had a couple of DUIs. I had had experiences where friends of mine who had similar experiences to mine killed people. Mm. Um, I didn't luckily, thankfully, um, I didn't die. I didn't hurt anybody else, um, or kill anybody, but I'd seen that happen around me. And, um, I knew that I would probably get by. That was my thing. I knew that I may, you know, have more DUIs. I mean, I kind of moved to New York because it was New York and I wanted to come out and I wanted to do all these things or whatever. But I also knew that I didn't drive there and I was probably going to be fine if I didn't, you know, get behind a wheel again. Like that's the kind of thinking. That's how small my thinking got. Even in the biggest city in the world, my, my thinking got pretty small. And, um, and, uh, but none of those things mattered. You know, when mm. I, what had happened was I woke up for work late one morning and it was the second, third, fourth, fifth time that month, you know, and um, I looked in the mirror and I remember looking into the mirror and there was nothing behind my eyes anymore. Mm. It was just dead. It was this um, this idea that I I didn't see anything looking back. And I knew, like I said, I could probably keep going that way. And I just didn't want to anymore. And so I went into work. I was late for this really important meeting. And the thing about it was the day before that I had a great day. I had like a great workout. That meeting that I missed was one that I was leading. I was, you know, in a great mood. And I remember having this conversation with myself walking from 55th and 3rd to 58th and 10th where I lived. Uh, 55th and 3rd is where I worked. And it was like, I'm not going to drink. I might go to a bar. The next block was, I might go to a bar, but I won't buy a drink. The next block was, well, if somebody buys me a drink, like this conversation in my head. It's insanity. And it was. And then I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning, like out of a blackout. And then woke up at 10 o'clock in the morning late for work. Did you go to treatment? Did you just go to AA meetings? I just got sober through 12-step programs. 12-step programs, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, that I had had some experience. Yeah, That was me too. I never went to treatment. I never in-house, outpatient. I I never did it. And I, I always say it's so important for us to always share exactly how we got sober because there is truly, I, I get emails from parents all the time, like, what's the right way to get my <laughs> child in? And I, and I try to explain to them is that I can bring on 50 different people to this podcast. You will hear 50 different ways that people got sober. And 12-step programs were enough for me yeah. to get yeah. to get me to stop. Yeah, and for some people, it's intensive outpatient treatment, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's rehabs, and you look, there is no right way. No. And I'm a big proponent of there's no right way to do things, right? It's like, what is the way that works for you? And you have to find the way that mm-hmm. works for you until you... Um, until you do it and then keep doing it, you know, like for me, it's like, I wanted to, once I got a taste of what it was like to live a life that was free from drugs and alcohol, I wanted more of that, you know, I mean, I'm an an addict, so I wanted more of that good shit. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I wanted more of that mentality of like, Oh, what's next and what else can I uncover? Well, now that you've done some, because what do you do professionally now? So now I speak and uh, write and, and do content around what I call approachable inspiration, mm-hmm. uh, specifically um, something called Meditation for Assholes. This uh, is amazing. Thank you. Yeah. And so Meditation for Assholes, the whole idea is that I wanted to demystify meditation. Mm. And, and it's about getting 
getting real with good, right? So like, you know, there's a lot of things out there in the world that are either too preachy, I found, or that are out of reach for people. And I just wanted to get more people meditating. And I want to get more people talking about the good shit that's happening out there in the world mm-hmm. and then acting upon it on their own life. First off, I love that like a former alky and, and druggy is now like, teaching people about spirituality and like <laughs> meditation and stuff which by the way we're going to do a really cool podcast because I'm a really bad meditator and even though he'll say there's no bad meditator uh-huh. um, like I can already like feel his response coming at me which is bad because I already know what the answer is going to be and I still have found ways to excuse myself from meditating mm-hmm. and my sponsor and my therapist are probably going to watch this being like yes this is very good get Brandon to meditate when I reflect back because one of the questions I do get, I, I get a lot, and I want to ask you this: is people ask me, you grew up in Laguna Beach, it's a beautiful part of the country. You went to private schools. I played soccer, had a chance to play soccer overseas for a little bit. Was a competitive athlete, did really well in school. The question I get is, how did you become an addict? Like mm-hmm. your parents weren't addicts, your parents weren't alcoholics. And what I and that was a hard question for me to explain to people because mm-hmm. I really didn't know. I'm mm-hmm. like, how did I end up like with the life that I did? And why did I choose drugs and alcohol as my solution? And now through a lot of therapy, I for me have understood that it was a lot of the trauma that I experienced as a child, right? I was molested by my piano teacher and my youth soccer mm-hmm. coach and you know, suffered a lot of verbal abuse and some physical abuse uh, from my mother mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. realized that untreated, I suppressed, went into survival mode, and it eventually came out sideways. So right. what led you to even uh, cure yourself or medicate with drugs and alcohol? Like I said, I, for me, it was that thing that was like, that was the escape, right? When it was offered to me, it was that. And I, you know, my my childhood, um, my ajita came from so many different things, from being a closet case, from, or not closet case, I was a kid who didn't know right. what it was like to be gay. You right. know? I'm 40 years old now, so like, it's a lot different for kids who are coming out now. Yeah, they're like 17 years old and they're on the football team and they're coming out gay and all friends thinks it's great. And I'm in like, the that's same, amazing. Exactly. And by the way, my brother is 15 years younger than me in the same school district that I yeah. went to in a suburb of Pittsburgh. His friend, He had friends that were gay in high school and it was no big deal. No Whereas, big deal like, at all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so... I mean, I think that was part of it. Um, I, I, you know, I, I didn't grow up in an abusive household, so I didn't have that. I don't even have anything that was really a trigger for me, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I think for me, it was just an uncomfortability that I didn't know, and I was never in the right place. I was never in the right place. I never felt right in my home. Uh, town. I never felt right in my skin. I was like kind of chubby, you know, all that yeah. kind of stuff that kind of just kept happening. And so when I eventually um, had that first drink, all of those things fell away. And it be, it, that's why I say that it worked for me. Um, what I've learned to ex- learned throughout years and, and experiencing some trauma and helping others to go through trauma, though, is that that is like a PTSD response. Right. Mm. And so because we have all this stuff in our prefrontal cortex and all of this, you know, I mean, the neuroscience of it is that we are going to want to treat the things that happen to us no matter how far deep down they're buried. Right. So we all have shame. Right. And we, we got a chance to talk about this. The shame that's buried in the pit of our stomach. Right. Is why we sometimes act out in fear and why we sometimes act out in like overeating. Right. You had the. Um, the guest on, was it Tanya? Oh, yeah, Tanya Brown. And yeah, she, she spoke you know, a lot about that, right? She, she went into food addiction. That mm-hmm. was her way to medicate. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of times I think what happens is that we just keep 
medicating and medicating until we're able to get to a space of like, this doesn't work anymore. But what happens then is we're too far down that rabbit hole. So mm-hmm. how much more do we have to medicate? And we have to find different ways to medicate. And I, you know, when you spoke on your first podcast about your story and it was the whole um, trauma that you experienced, um, but then also how you, you know, when you had um, used meth for the first time, right? Mm-hmm. And that was like, an eye opener for you and you knew that all bets were off, but it was exactly what you needed at that time. I had never. Yeah. I mean, I tell you this, I, I, I really honestly felt like a superhero. Like I felt so invincible and you talked about, I had a lot of gay shame, you know, growing up as a kid and being Mm -hmm. an athlete, being gay, which was unheard of like in the early nineties, especially in orange County. Um, and that the moment I hit that pipe, I, 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 I describe it as it is a high, like your body should only ever feel like a 10 out of 10 on a euphoric high. And like that drug on that day, that first time, it was like a 15 out of 10 in that moment. And then I began six months of chasing that 15 out of 10. And did you ever find it? No. And it went from 14, 13, 12, and it just dropped until it was down to like two. And I just felt like such crap, you know, when I was so broken. And I found that in, in, 18 years of being clean and sober, I also still have that need to try to get a high, right? Oh yeah. If one thing, if whether it's food or sex or date, we know I'm married now, but when it was dating or when I was like, Oh, I let me just do more of that thing. Right. Or I have the opposite or I've had the opposite, which is this works. So I'll quit. Mm. Right. I call it like this works. So I'll quit syndrome. So it's like, Oh, and this is like, Oh, this is all working the way it's supposed to be working and things are flowing. So I'm just going to stop doing it. Cause why would <laughs> must, must have fixed it? You know, it's so true. And uh, a lot of us, I think, I think a lot of us medicate with sex, right? Because sex feels good. But mm-hmm. I, as a sex addict, I can be the first one to tell you, yeah, it feels good. But it, to me, I equivalent, some will argue, but I, this is the best way I can explain it. It's the same thing like that random sex that I would chase after because it felt so good to like medicate, right? It feels good. I'm going to go have sex. But here's where I ran into that problem was that that anonymous sex, that chasing after that mysterious sex was just like that um, meth that I did because the more you do it, the more you do it, the less fun it is and the less you get out of it. And then suddenly you're having sex with all these people and it means nothing to you and it doesn't feel good. Not only does it not feel good, it deadens your soul, mm. right? And I, you know, the reason that we're chasing after that high, that sex, that 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 superhero strength, right, mm. is because we're still trying to heal something inside. Mm. And the I only way to heal that thing inside is is really to go inside, in my mm. experience, right, and to be there, not to like dive in and then over medic over medicate yourself with you know like the head thing, you know, our head can tell us a lot of things, right? Yeah. You got to separate the head from the heart in that, in that time and go inside and sitting and being with yourself. Right. And really even that is a channel to feeding what is like bigger, right? I don't know what, you know, you guys at, at home or, or anybody who's listening or you, you know, personally believe in, but I believe in this universe, right? And there's a lot of different things that we're connected to that are not necessarily, um, Jesus or God or whatever, right. right? Whatever that is for you. Mm-hmm. The only way to get to that deeper connection is a, to access that connection, which is already within you, but by being quiet and by being still. And that's why I, after nine years of not meditating mm. became such a big proponent of it, um, in my life and for for the life of others. Yeah. So, um, okay. When did you, people preach to you to meditate from like day one in recovery yeah i mean and, but it pretty took you, early it took you how many years so to finally I, do it because you're gonna make me feel at nine. least a little bit better nine. nine so see i'm nine years so i'm right on, right, I'm on right on track, track. <laughs> i'm right on track right on track buddy um 
I think it was about nine. And I remember meditating in 2002 and uh, being like a year sober and I didn't levitate and I was like, well, it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> so then I prescribed myself to eight years of, you know, I'm too ADHD. I'm mm-hmm. too medic. I'm too, um, not Medicaid. I'm too ADHD. I'm too caffeinated. Yeah. I'm too go, go, go. I'm running around <laughs> New York. And then I moved to LA and I'm running around LA and I have this. And yeah. then you, I look at it in retrospect. It was like, I was the pinball man. I was oh, yeah. all over the place. I stayed clean and sober, but I was still all over the place. And, I also thought because I didn't, I thought I had to levitate, right, or whatever the you know equivalent of that was for me at that time. I thought of meditation as robes and beards. Yeah, and I don't have that many um, robes, <laughs> and uh, and I didn't have a beard at the time. Um, but I also thought of I needed to do twenty minutes twice a day. Mm-hmm. You know, and we talk about perfectionism, mm-hmm. and I believe that that was one of the things too that kind of held me back from doing it. And that's what I want to stop people from doing is there is no bad, there is no wrong, there's no right. There's no good way to meditate. For me, what happened was it was when I finally started, I started with two minutes and it was just two minutes of a guided meditation, but I did that every day. And when I did that every day, I was able to get to five minutes every day. And then that five minutes eventually led to 10 minutes every day. And I, you know, at the time, even probably when you heard me speak, I was at the end towards the end of a relationship that had been six years long. And I was so in my head about should I stay or should I go and never really in my heart and never sitting still like I talked to, with you about it just a moment ago. Mm-hmm. And I think what had happened was what had happened was I finally got like calm and present and I didn't have to stay in my head about what I should stay, whether or not I should stay in that relationship. The answer just came. And one morning I was able to, as I remember it, go into the bedroom and say to him, I can't do this anymore. Mm. And that freed him up to go get married and have two kids. And that freed me up to go start doing the journey that I started on and having three years of being, you know, alone and, 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 and in a relationship with myself and starting a company and closing a company and starting another company and doing all of these things by being present mm. and eventually, uh, you know, meeting my now husband and, and going through the journey that we've gone through is with, um, in terms of being, uh, having kids. So the journey that you you're on today and, and I'm I'm curious just to know is how many of the friends how many of your friends in your life today knew you as a drunk? Oh wow. Um you know I have probably like two people I keep in touch with from high school, mm-hmm. you know, on a consistent basis and two very close friends from college. Mm-hmm. Um I mean and I know people from school, you know what I mean? And yeah. I'll still like talk to them every once in a while, but that's really it besides family. Yeah. You know, I mean, I just, I think I've moved away and I've evolved. They've evolved in their own ways as well, right. but kind of know. just natural life progression that you kind of grow in, in, in different directions. But people who knew me as an asshole, <laughs> <laughs> still a lot of those, still a lot of yeah. those. I like that, which is why he has meditation for assholes. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I, I try, you know, when I reflect back, there's only, mm, there's a few there's a few people who I used to party with and they've, t- you know, they've calmed down in their own, in their own ways. Cause they're not addicts, but naturally they get older and they get calmer. And, uh, but for the most part, everybody in my life, for the most part, everybody in my life has only ever known me sober. Mm-hmm. And like once in a while I'll throw in like, like 50% of a war story. Like I won't even go the whole way with the <laughs> war story and I'll share it with them. And like the look on their faces, they're like, <gasps> you did that. They're like, you're the most in control person we know in our life. Like, how did you ever do that? And it's, and then when they think that of me, I'm like, ah, it's so amazing. Like the 12 step program and just being in recovery and sobriety is like 
working. Yeah. Like, that's the perception that people now have of me as yeah. somebody who's responsible, somebody who is yeah. considerate and somebody who is not out of control. I'm like, okay, those are all great qualities to have. Did you have that? Do you have that perception of yourself? I know. You know, it's so funny. My therapist, it was a, it was a hard moment. You know, my therapist said to huh. me, she goes, you still don't see yourself the way others see you. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I was like, well, how do you see me? You know, and I asked her, I was like, well, how do you see me? And, you know, and she started listing off some things. I'm like, mm, you're right. I probably don't see myself mm-hmm. in, the, in that way. That's a hard one. How do, you, how do you compensate for that now? Oh, God. How do I compensate for that now? Um, you know, I, this it's a good question. Um, I really believe that the people I choose to have in my life today are more reflections of who I am. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I'm really attracted to... I don't hang out with everybody and I'm very selective on people. And if I don't want to go to dinner with a group of people, I just don't go. Like that's one thing I've learned to say no to. And, but yeah, I look around all my friends and I'm like, they're all such beautiful souls and beautiful people and they all have different qualities that make them great. And I, I guess I'm, I'm really now choosing people that are a reflection of me Mm -hmm. and who I met, who I am. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I makes- mean, there are times, listen, there are times right now and I, that I am insecure and that I do have moments of fear and out the day. I mean, I just gave up a, a huge job in Arizona as a news anchor and I was, you know, having a, making a great, you know, making a great salary and, you know, you give up all those things. <laughs> there are moments where I do get a little scared. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, I had this conversation that when I did not believe in God or I didn't believe in my higher power, my spirituality, my higher power even in my active addiction was looking out for me, even though I refuse to acknowledge that higher power. Mm-hmm. So I look at the, what's transpired in my life today. And I'm like, why would I ever doubt that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so does that help you get back from that fear place then quickly? It does. I mean, and that's the one thing that it, it, it's a beautiful thing about the program is that we're able to fast forward any of that tape, right? It, to say even when we get sober that I never have a drug fantasy is like ludicrous. Like I have to tell my sponsees, listen, I'm nine years clean. Are there moments where I'm like, ah, I kind of romanticize about that 15 out of 10 feeling that that meth gave me on that first time. Yeah. Like that memory is still locked in my head, but I'm at least smart enough to know that I can no longer chase that. Yeah. I remember there were times where people were like, do you ever want to drink? And I was like, no, but there are times where I want to cook cocaine filled coffee table right like just like a mound of it and i don't i don't i mean i don't remember the last time i've had that feeling but it doesn't mean i'm immune to it you know right i always think that um in terms of mindfulness of emotions right and and mindfulness paying attention to your um what you're experiencing without judgment essentially right paying attention to everything without judgment but when i have those um you know those experiences of um I, I don't necessarily think it's important to, you know, okay, so you have to say where you are, right? Mm-hmm. Like your fear of like, okay, I just turned on this big job and there are moments where I'm still thinking about what did I just do, right? Or right. why did I just walk away from that? You can't get to, this is where it's like ways. You can't get to where you want to be unless you give your starting location with ways, right? right? If you're not sharing your location with ways, you're never going to be able to get to where you want to go, right? Yeah. So you have to say, oh, why? I'm in fear right now. I want to be in that faith that mm-hmm. I know that I can be in. I want to be in that spirit, right? Or that, that, that flow, which is very important. But right now I'm in fear. And if you just mask that and you're like, everything's fine, right? Then you're never going to be able to get fully immersed in that faith space. And I think, again, that's another thing, and not to keep pitching you, although your therapist called me and asked me to do this, about (laughs) meditation. I'm just kidding. About meditation. (laughs) It is that thing for Mm. me. That is what that gives to me. It gave me that point of I'm connected, I'm in the flow, and I don't need to be 
masking my fear and running away from it or pretending to be in faith and not really being in it. Well, I got to ask you this because I because you have something that I want. Hmm. You know, I was saying in recovery is like surround yourself with people who have what you want. Um, and we always say choose a sponsor, right, hmm. to guide you through the program who has what you want. Well, I also like to like have friends in my life who have things that I want and not in a jealous way. I trust me, I do not mean that in a jealous way, but like you're in a, a successful relationship, you're married and you know, that's something that I've had to go through therapy to figure out like, why am I having these relationship issues? Like, why am I unable to show my vulnerability to somebody, which I've spent four years of therapy working on. Yeah, so now yeah. I ask you is like, how hard was it for you to, or was it even hard for you in recovery? Is your husband sober? No. Or he's not. Yeah. So you're married to a normie. Uh-huh. I'm going to assume he's no, a he's normie. he's a heroin addict. No, he's not, he's not. Like, <laughs> wait, I'm going to assume he's a normie, right? And not yeah. an addict. Uh-huh. Um, and so... <clears throat> What are the challenges does that face? Are there no challenges? No, absolutely. Absolutely. And look, we've had our share of challenges of us against the world, not against the world, but that we faced together. You know, we've been foster parents for three years. We had a set of kids who um, were with us for a year and a half and then reunified with their birth parents. Mm -hmm. And that was a trauma that we went through and and that they are going through because they may have gone back to an environment that isn't as healthy. Right. Um is the best way that I could say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, we're in the process of adopting three children right now. Mm. Right. And then there's the chaos of having three kids um, or two kids and the chaos of, you know, temper tantrums. And then there's, you know, we've been together six years and then there's things that happen when you're together six years where you're like, this isn't what I signed up for. So you evolve or you don't, you know, and yeah. you can make those decisions for me. You know, I have a pretty specific morning routine or routine when it comes to meditation now. I do a lot of gratitude lists. I do a lot of, you know, praying and writing and doing all of these things that I always said that you should do. Yeah. (laughs) And now I never say should. I just do them. And Mm. I share with people what works for me. And that's one of the ways that I keep my marriage and my sanity intact and and me sane. But I'm not perfect. And he's not perfect. And, And vulnerability, you know, as you spoke about working on that for four years, is one of the things that does keep us together. You know, when we can say to each other, I'm not happy with the way that these, this is going right now or the opposite, which is even harder for me to say, I'm really grateful that you've done something like this. Right. Mm -hmm. Or you're really, I'm really proud of the way that you did this. I mean, those are for whatever reason for me, those are harder things for me to say. Um, and even harder for me to hear. So I have to be vulnerable about the good stuff too. Yeah. I, and I have to ask you this, um, before we eventually start to wrap up and because you have so much time in recovery, have there ever been dips in your recovery where you've not re- not relapsed, but has there ever been times in recovery where you've gotten bored? Oh yeah. Or dry. Yeah. Or dry. Mm-hmm. Like what do you do during those times? Um, look, I think, I mean, I've had a few of them. I've had, I've had four sponsors. I've had times where I have been dry, you know, I mean, it's still that I would check in at meetings, but right now I'm in a space where I'm doing a lot of work Mm -hmm. in the program. Um, even though I'm going to less meetings right now than I was before the kids came just because it's insane. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I, I think, one of the things that has been, at least for the past, you know, nine or 10 years for me, it has been about that connection with the universe, mm. the connection with the higher power of the spirit. 
um, for me because that has been my through line. You know, meditation and prayer for me has really been my through line. And then asking for help. Again, as I you know, speak about being vulnerable, a lot of that vulnerability is um, asking for help. And I have never been really good at that. Yeah, I and so sometimes it's too. like, I need a new sponsor. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, or I need help or I need new fr- I need friends that are sober and I need to like talk to them and tell them what I'm going through mm-hmm. instead of, look, for me, I think, Brandon, the big thing is I got to stay out of my head as much as possible. Mm. And I, and I, and I cognitively know that, but that's still in my head. <laughs> You're like, I got to do the action step to get myself out of my head. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's like a, it's a really beautiful message. And I think that for me, asking others for help is one of the, the most difficult things that I ever do. Um, because I know exactly where that comes from. It comes from the overachiever, right? I don't need your help. I can do everything on my own. And yeah. that comes from me trying to want attention from my parents and seek attention and, and approval and applause yeah. and, whatever it is from, from everybody else, yeah. you know, cause yeah. I feel like if I need help from somebody, then I didn't do it. You know, they helped me do it. And then, you know, you don't get all the credit or like, yeah, yeah, it's, and it's less than it's less than, but that's the rather, but that's, that's mm-hmm. just a, a, that's up in here. Yeah. That's not reality no. of how people perceive it. Right. Um, and right. you know what, and I'll say with this is that, you know, my therapist goes, you know what? You enjoy doing things for your friends, right? And this is what really flipped it for me. She goes, you enjoy doing things for your friends, right? I'm like, oh my God, I love doing things for my friends. She goes, good, because it makes you feel good, right? I'm like, yeah. She goes, good, then give your friends the same gift of having them feel good by helping you. Right, right. And I was like... I got your point taken. <laughs> good, I can control that. No, point no. taken. Um, all right, so as we close up here, what's what's a good piece of advice that you can give to you know somebody who is out there who's never been to a 12-step meeting, never been to recovery, but is struggling and just looking for some hope? Well, I mean, go, you go. know, and listen. You know, I love that idea of listening for the similarities. Um, but I, if we're going about what we talked about today, it's really about just asking for help. Mm. And I think for me, and I, this is something that I work, with on a daily basis is letting go of the knowing it. I don't know, you know, the less, the more time I have on this earth, the more time that I have sober, the less I know. (laughs) And I think that that is really what allows me to stay connected. And I think for somebody who's struggling, right? If you're struggling right now, don't know, don't know the answers. Mm. Don't know what your future holds because you don't, you don't know what your past defines you as because it doesn't. It's like really be present, be in the moment, don't know and ask for help. And, and show up. (laughs) like I did to a random meeting that a nurse at Hollywood Presbyterian suggested I go to so I can get $5 of a cab ride Mm -hmm. and show up and you can eventually hear the message that you're meant to hear on that day. Just like I showed up to that meeting and I heard this guy Mm -hmm. share his message, which got me to my next meeting. So um, thanks for tuning in to Escaping Rock Bottom. You can find it on the website, escapingrockbottom.com, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and of course, YouTube and Facebook. Big thanks to Jason uh, for showing up here. We're going to do a second podcast, and that is strictly going to be on just meditating. For this asshole. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, Thanks, y'all, for watching, and we'll see you next week. All right.